podcast. I'm here today with Andrew Roberts. He's a historian. He's the he's a member of the House of Lords, and he's the author of the wonderful Napoleon: A Life, uh, which we'll be discussing today. Um, Andrew, what is the um, so when I look at Napoleon's life, I can't help but play counterfactuals and think about how you know how he could have potentially stayed in power for longer. What- points of time. And my reading from his life is that the Treaty of Amiens was, in 1802, was really sort of the hinge point. If that could have held, um, Napoleon could have potentially stayed in power and been at peace with the rest of Europe. Do you, do you see it the same way, or would you look at some other moment in time as more important? Not just the Peace of Amiens. Um, also, uh, I mean, that was in um, 1802 to 1803 that that peace lasted, but also at the time of Tilsit in 1807, uh, if he hadn't then invaded um, uh, Portugal and, and, and Spain in 1808, if he hadn't um, obviously gone to war with Russia in 1812, um, and if he had made peace with the Allies in 1813, um after that, actually, it, there wasn't much hope uh, for the Napoleonic Empire. But uh, but otherwise, yes, absolutely, there doesn't seem to be any reason. Of course, he dies in 1821 uh, from cancer, which can't be um, altered. But uh, there seems to be no reason why you couldn't have a Napoleonic um, dynasty on the throne of France, really, until um, until it is actually overthrown in 1870 in the Franco-Prushan War. Mm. The well, the reason I go back to Amiens because in all those other cases, Britain was hostile. So my reading from the situation was that Great Britain was always going to try to find a way to uh, to harm France, to get Napoleon, uh, you know, to, to restrict his empire, and that that was really the only period of time where there was peace was Brit- with Britain. Was peace with Britain sort of the key here, or could could Napoleon just have been hostile to Britain and stayed in power? Yeah, no, he could have. I mean, it was the uh, it was really the uh, Berlin Decrees uh, in 1806 and the attempt to create a continental system, which was a sort of protectionist measure that was designed to destroy British trade, that meant that Britain um, could no longer live with a Napoleonic France. But in 1802 and 1803, um, it clearly could because it made peace with um, with France. It wasn't a particularly popular peace. Um, plenty of people who uh, in Britain uh, and indeed in France who thought of it solely as a truce, um, and uh, they rather felt that it was inevitable that they go to war again. But um, but nothing in history is inevitable. That's one of the you know fascinating things about history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, how do you uh, a, port- a partition blame for these various conflicts? Was were was the Napoleonic Wars Napoleon's fault? I mean, could you know was was he sort of more the aggressor here or more aggressed against? Well, he was the um, uh, he's certainly to blame for the uh, Peninsula War, the war in the Iberian Peninsula um, from eighteen oh eight till. Um, uh, well, until the French were flung out of the peninsula in 1814. That six-year war, particularly nasty, brutal, uh, vicious um, guerrilla campaign, essentially, um, was his fault because uh, he didn't have any right to the Spanish throne. Um, The Spanish Bourbons had the right to that. And yet he imposed his own brother, King Joseph, as King of Spain. So he's he's guilty there. Um, And then, of course, the invasion of Russia in 1812, didn't need to cross the Neiman uh, with that vast army. That was a um, uh, another 
uh, war that he had started. But they're the only two. And there are seven wars of the coalition in the Napoleonic, in the revolutionary and Napoleonic wars. The other five were started by the uh, by the coalition of allies, which, as you say, was um, in each case uh, financed by Britain. But overall, actually, it's the um, it's the Austrians and Prussians and Russians who uh, take the uh, field against him, uh, or at least against France, revolutionary France as well, five times. And he's responsible for two wars, and yet they're all called the Napoleonic Wars. <laughs> yeah, well, Napoleon was at the, at the center of them. Right. I mean, is it is it just too hard? Like, if you're, you know, there's, I guess, there's, he's not an angel, he's not a, He's not the sort of the bad actor because you you compare him. You don't compare him to Hitler. You you take issue in the book um, with comparisons to Hitler, um, and that's a case where there was sort of an aggressive actor, and you could look at everyone sort of reacting to him, right? And you don't see it. And forget about you know the the human rights violations and the mass killings of Hitler and all that. But you you just see it as sort of Napoleon was in this place, and it was just the international system that sort of forced these countries into it. Well, you've got to remember, I mean, it's the, uh, you're quite right, of course, he was nothing like Hitler at all. Um, but uh, although he did invade Russia and he was a dictator, yeah. um, but that, it, it stops there. Um, but, um, but much more importantly, the, it's the allies, the, the coalitions that want to um, stop him and destroy him. Partly because, of course, what he was doing is supporting the concepts of, of meritocracy that were unleashed by the French Revolution. Um, now, he wasn't in power at the time of the French Revolution. He only came to power 10 years after it uh, had broken out. But nonetheless, he, did, he was a great supporter of the, uh, of the ideas of, um, of you know, liberty and, uh, and fraternity and uh, meritocracy and so on, which were uh, anathema to most of the um, autocratic um, European monarchies. And indeed, to an extent, um, also to uh, um, to the British. So you have this this sense that it's it's the ideas that he represents, which are so revolutionary that they uh, that they need to kill off. Um, it's uh, it's really a uh, a sort of ideological struggle as well as one that's just uh, purely geographical and dynastic and and sort of old fashioned in that regard. Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny you say you know he, he had this belief in these revolutionary principles, including meritocracy. Well, we were just talking about how he put his brother on the Spain on the throne of Spain, and how that was a major cause of war. How much of this meritocracy and this liberty stuff, I mean, was sort of instrumental, and how much did he believe in it? Because how he act, acted well, with he, his had, he had to work within the uh, within the overall you know constructs of um, of politics of the day. Which uh, so you did insert somebody on a on a throne uh, in those days, and um, and of course the person he thought he could trust, not always true actually with his uh, family, but nonetheless the people he thought he could trust were of course his his own family. So yes, I mean um, King Joseph of Spain wasn't um, elected by uh, by a meritocratic upswing of of the opinion polls. It was very much imposed on the Spanish by French bayonets. Um, but you had to um, you had to factor in you know um, the way in which uh, politics had always been done, and, and and that was to insert your family onto thrones. 
Yeah, yeah. So when you have the, um, you mentioned the uh, continental system and the hostilities with Britain. You, you talk a lot about uh, sort of uh, Napoleon's uh, mercantilism, uh, Colbertism. Um, how much of a factor was sort of these wrong-headed economic ideas in creating hostilities between uh, France and England in particular? To, uh, to the views of Colbert, um, which was that uh, essentially protectionist blocks are the way forward. Actually, you could uh, argue today when you look at the European Union and uh, and um, all the various other protectionist blocks that we've got in uh, in the world that Colbert was probably just as um, uh, just as foresighted as uh, as Adam Smith, um, but Napoleon did believe that the way to bring Britain to the negotiating table was uh, essentially to strangle her trade. Um, she, he, he, um, he thought that the British were uh, not uh, heroic actors, that in fact instead all they were interested in was making money. He famously called them the shopkeepers, a nation of shopkeepers. And, um, and so he thought that if he could uh, strangle British trade, he would be able to... Um, uh, to um, you know, essentially win the Napoleonic Wars. But what he didn't factor in really was the concept of free trade, especially smuggling, um, the uh, way in which all over Europe, unless you actually had a, had a sort of French gendarme watching you at the time, people were willing to uh, exchange goods and services for, um, for money with, uh, with Britain. And so the sort of inherent instinctive um, desire to trade actually defeated um, Napoleon's uh, uh, belief in a protectionist system. Hmm. So, if he was, if he had been a free trader, if he read Adam Smith, and I think you might mention in your book, I read somewhere that he at least owned a copy of Adam Smith um, at some point in his life. Um, if he'd read it and you know been convinced of it, um, and he just said, "Okay, we're gonna," I, I, I believe in free trade. I'm gonna open up, you know, Europe. They could trade whoever whatever they want um would that have would that have potentially avoided the wars would that have uh produced yes, it would have meant that he did it would have meant that he didn't um invade um um lisbon in uh, take on the portuguese and uh, try to crush the portuguese uh in 1807 uh which led on to the uh the um spanish imbroglio what, what he called the spanish ulcer uh the following year and also, of course, uh, it would have meant that he needn't uh, have invaded Russia because it was the Tsar's decision, Tsar Alexander I's decision in 1811 to uh, open up trade with Britain that, um, that led to the uh, uh, invasion of 1812 and the retreat from Moscow. So, yes, the two great campaigns that essentially brought Napoleon down were both um, driven by a... Um, a desire to follow Colbertism rather than uh, uh, than Adam Smith. Imagine if he'd taken it to heart and gone right. We're going to have a French industrial revolution. I mean, he did, in a sense, um, do an awful lot for French industry. He uh, he set up prizes for um, technical innovation and so on. Uh, but if uh, he had um, cared more about trying to produce. Um, goods at uh, cheaper prices than the uh, than the British could, and of course he was twenty years behind a 
the um, British Industrial Revolution. But instead, if he could try to catch up um, rather than and eventually uh, overcome, rather than just uh, invade countries whenever they wanted to trade with Britain, um, as I say, the Napoleonic uh, regime would have lasted an awful lot longer. Yeah, we talked about parallels with Hitler. I mean, do you see the parallel there? Because he's talking about living space as a bomb. He's talking about we need, you know, you look at Mein Kampf, and it's all about we don't have enough food. We have this many people. It's very Malthusian. Um, if Hitler had understood trade too, would have. You know, he's got other things going on. But do you, do you see a parallel there? Um, not really, no. Because unlike Napoleon, he has got this uh, uh, profound racial sense. You know, Napoleon wasn't right. uh, racist. He didn't. Um, hate Jews. In fact, he uh, he liberated Jews whenever he um, whenever his armies entered the um, uh, the cities, you know, where where they were uh, confined to ghettos, and he let them all out and gave them uh, gave them civil and religious uh, freedom. So, um, so no, I, I don't overlap terribly much uh, with. I mean, obviously, Hitler did believe in economic autarky. Um, mm. But um, but I don't think that was the driving force for his uh, uh, his desire for conquest. Yeah, and so this this idea of um, protectionism, mercantilism, how much is it ideology like we've been talking about Adam Smith versus Col- uh, Colbertism, and how much is it um, public choice theory? It's uh, you know the industry, the you know governments want to protect jobs. Um, people have sort of a, a status quo bias, you know, industries are concentrated and they don't want to lose out because it seems like there was political pressure from below too, to, to have these kind of policies, right? Well, he did. Um, uh, he, he was very um, switched on with regard to um, things like um, employment, of course, and, uh, and um, trying to create the correct economic um, climate for French uh, producers. You see this particularly when he's first consul after the Brumaire coup of 1799. He uh, starts dressing in um, in um, very luxurious costumes, wearing French uh, silk and velvet. He has Josephine uh, put out a, a rule, really, in the court that only French silk is to be worn, not foreign silk, uh, in order to try to revive the industry, the luxury goods industry, essentially, um, that had been devastated for obvious reasons by the French Revolution. And, uh, and so, yes, he, he was uh, highly attuned to the importance of making sure that, um, that there weren't um, um, too many unemployed in, in, in France, because politically that was always a very dangerous uh, position for anybody. And look what had happened in the, uh, to the Bourbons. Yeah. So, so when we play as counterfactual that he could have just been a free trader, maybe he couldn't have and, and kept power. No, because um, uh, you know the, the glory of free trade is that uh, if there is something that um, goes wrong in one industry, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's not going to be good for some other industry somewhere else. Well, maybe, you know, but the concentrated uh, interest, the, the people who lost their jobs might be angrier than the other people are happy, right? There might just be <laughs> well, that's, that's the that's, that's the story of history, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, so the, the idea, the ideology thing, you know, I'm fascinated by this. Uh, Napoleon, 
how much was he an ideological actor? How much was it he was, you know, he came to power on the wave of the French Revolution. All these ideas were in the air and he always had to consider, you know, the old revolutionaries, like his, how he's inter- interacts with the church is, is fascinating throughout. Um, do you, was there a lot of times in his life that you found that he acted against his own interests for, purpo- for purposes of ideology or do you, how, was ideology instrumental to him or was it something real that really influenced his behavior? How, how do you see that? Yes, it was important, and specifically this um, idea of meritocracy. You know, for up until the French Revolution, the place that you had in society, the rank and status that you had in society, was essentially um, that of your parents and grandparents. Suddenly, for the first time in history, over a thousand years, um, you could be um, judged and get to a position in life entirely on your own merits, and you would be... Uh, uh, rewarded, and he made sure that people were rewarded with that. That's the idea when he was saying that every soldier has a marshal's baton in his knapsack. Uh, that means um, essentially that uh, that you can get to the very top. And boy, did they! You know, these were the sons of uh, innkeepers and barrel um, makers and domestic servants and so on, peasants, and uh, they got to the very top. And uh, two of his marshals became uh, kings. And uh, and lots of them became princes. They had these magnificent estates and so on. And they did it on the basis of, uh, of how good they were on the battlefield, essentially. This is a, a, a really um, uh, exciting moment for people of talent and hard work and uh, risk-taking and so on. Um, and, uh, and so, of course, it unleashed a huge amount of um, uh, capacity for, for hard work and innovation and, and uh, so on which helped France enormously. So, so yeah, he was a real believer in that. And in a sense, he was himself one of those kind of people because although he was an aristocrat um, by name, essentially, in Corsica, Corsica didn't really have aristocrats. They didn't have uh, very much money, um, uh, disposable income, the uh, Bonaparte family on Corsica. And, um, and so it really was through his own um, genius that he, uh, he got to where he was and... Uh, uh, so, yes, I, I think uh, ideology was important. With regard to religion, um, it, uh, he recognised the power of, of religion on, uh, on people, especially, obviously, on the Catholic peasantry of uh, France. But um, he wasn't much of a, of a believer himself. Um, he, uh, whether or not he even believed in the Almighty, full stop, is, is uh, questionable. You, um, his father was a Voltairean um, freethinker. And um, the way he treated the Pope, uh, who, of course, he uh, imprisoned for, uh, for uh, several years between 1809 and, uh, and 1814, um, was obviously not uh, the kind of thing that a, a good Catholic boy should do. Yeah. What do you make of him um, on his deathbed taking, what do they call it, the Catholics when they die? Uh, um, uh, I don't know what it is. Unction. Yeah, unction. Unction, yeah. What do you, what do you um, make of that? Um, well, it's uh, <laughs> there's a, I think, who was it who, um, when asked uh, why he was taking extreme unction, uh, replied, "This is no time to make enemies." <laughs> um, you know, you uh, <laughs> you're sort of slightly covering your your bases, aren't you? Uh, he um, uh, also, of course, he was he was dying of cancer in in, in, in immense uh, pain, and uh, for a lot of the time. So uh, whether or not he was um, wholly 
um, working out the, the philosophy behind taking extreme unction or not uh, is is highly questionable, I think. Mm. Well, I mean, it's interesting because, yeah, there could be a Pascal's wager kind of thing going on here. At the same time, we know that Napoleon was very interested in how history saw him, right? And so he makes even a statement, I die in the faith of Rome, uh, like my father's or something like that. And so he must have known, I mean, he he had time, he knew he was going to die. He must have known that history would remember that to some extent, right? So. I mean, oh, he was very interested in history, of course, absolutely. I mean, that's why he wrote his uh, his memorials of Saint Helena, his autobiography, which turned into um, the best selling book, along with um, Uncle Tom's Cabin, of the um, of the whole of the nineteenth century. And uh, so, it's a book that's um, uh, a great deal of self justification, as you can imagine. He was trying to. Um, uh, trying to do the equivalent of what uh, Julius Caesar had done with his commentaries and, uh, and tell the story of his life very much from his own um, perspective. Of course, everybody does that in autobiography. Um, some of it's useful to historians. Um, quite a lot of it is just, is just uh, simply self-justification. Uh, he comes up with some 50 different uh, reasons for why he lost the Battle of Waterloo, for example. And so, yes, his his place in history is something that matters to him hugely. But again, it's not terribly different from an awful lot of politicians when they're writing their memoirs, frankly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so the um, the uh, you you haven't seen um, Ridley Scott's Napoleon, have you? Yes. Yes. Oh, you, you have seen it. Okay. Yeah. Did, yeah. Uh, I've written about it quite extensively. I've 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 written a review in the Sunday Times and a review in Commentary uh, Magazine. Uh, of it. So, um, so yes, it's a, uh, uh, it's been something that's been very, very helpful for my book sales. Um, they've, uh, they, they jumped hugely over, um, Christmas. I mean, obviously all book sales go up over Christmas, but yeah. with the film as well, uh, it was, uh, it was very helpful indeed. It sold, uh, nearly, uh, another 30,000, uh, copies for me. So I feel rather embarrassed and guilty uh, pointing out what a terrible film it was historically. <laughs> yeah. Was the was your issue with it? I, you know, I, I saw it that they were making Josephine the center of a story. And, and the, my impression is that the love for Josephine was genuine. But they have him coming back from Alba to see Josephine and all these other things that obviously weren't historically accurate. Was that the, was that the, the main problem with it? Um, yeah, there's nothing wrong with putting Josephine at the, at the center. Um, but you can't argue that she was central to any decision, uh, political, military decision that uh, he took. And yet that's what this book, this um, movie tries to do. It yeah. also just invents things that are ridiculous, like leading cavalry charges at the Battle of Waterloo, um, firing cannonballs at the pyramids. Mm. Um, the, uh, <laughs> the screenplay is just, is just a hilarious absurdity from beginning to end. Um, uh, so there are some lovely things about that film. There are lots of of great scenes and wonderful uniforms and, uh, Joe and Phoenix and, um, the lady Vanessa, um, Kirby, who plays, uh, Josephine, um, you know, obviously very good actors and you see all these, um, uh, these wonderful dresses and so on. But as far as the history is concerned, it's completely uh, ridiculous. Yeah. And, yeah, and the jo- Joking Phoenix character, uh, my impression from reading uh, your book is that Napoleon was 
jovial. He he had a good charisma. He was charming to his men. You, you see him in this film. He's almost um, you know he's 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 sort of just sort of autistic. I mean he he doesn't really show much personality except he's except brooding all the time, isn't he? Brooding and bad tempers and so on. You could never understand for a moment why millions of uh, of people would follow him, why hundreds of thousands of soldiers were willing to, uh, you know, fight and die uh, yeah. for him. <laughs> you just wouldn't do that for the yeah. Joaquin Phoenix character presented in this mo- uh, movie. Um, there's no humour, um, whereas Napoleon was an extremely funny man. There are about 80 Napoleon jokes in my book, uh, things that he uh, said which are witty and amusing, uh, whereas um, Joaquin Phoenix instead just seems to be in the ten- a perpetual bad temper. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and and frankly, there is also scenes like the one where he has sex under the table um, <laughs> with uh, Josephine while the servants are in the room. Yeah. Um, the one where he goes up to the British ambassador and says, "You're so, you think you're so great because you've got ships." Yeah, um, he, the, said, uh, he said boats, which is funnier because it just sounds boats. like little kids. <laughs> yeah, true, true. And then um, uh, the scene where. Josephine says, put, says, look between my legs and you'll find something you've never seen before or something. <laughs> <laughs> Dreadful. Though. And yeah. this was, he'd, he'd, he'd seen plenty of um, things that are between women's legs. So all in all, um, it was, a, uh, it was a, a great shame because, you know, you have three or four hundred million dollars to spend on a, on a Napoleon movie. You could have made one of the great... Uh, great uh, movies of all time, and because uh, it's such an extraordinary story, um, uh, and all he'd have needed really would be a historian or two to uh, uh, to help him along and to check some of these exploding cannonballs at the Battle of Waterloo, yeah. for example. You know, you don't get exploding cannonballs in uh, in uh, in that battle in 1815. It, it's it's just you know, it would be very very easy to have got that kind of thing right, but he. Uh, he decided not to. And, of course, not only did Ridley Scott get everything wrong, but he also turned on historians in general mm. and said, um, uh, and I think I, I quote uh, directly, uh, effing historians, what do they know? They weren't there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, we weren't there, but we have read the accounts of hundreds of people who were there yeah. and who, uh, who wrote them down. Yeah, is there is there a, uh, any Napoleon movie or movies that you particularly like? Well, I love the Abel Gans, um, but you do need a uh, sort of hundred piece orchestra to uh, to watch it too. I mean, it was made in nineteen twenty seven. Uh, it's a uh, it's still an absolutely fantastic thing. <clears throat> the the movie Waterloo, which I saw when it came out in nineteen seventy, um, is a um, is a wonderful thing. I was taken by my father when i was seven years old and uh, that really was a uh, a complete um, uh, delight you can still watch it again now it's uh, it's a fantastic thing mm. um but uh, his life is so enormous and so um s- storied of course and so epic that it is difficult to um to even get on the um on the silver screen i once asked um um martin scorsese actually uh, whether he would do a, a, a movie about um, about Napoleon, and he um, recollected that um, that several great um, directors have thought about it, uh, and some have come very close to doing it. 
but uh, but actually it was a it was just such an enormous thing, um, and I think that sadly Ridley Scott has has failed to uh, um, to pull it off. But that doesn't mean that somebody else can't. You know, it's a it's a wonderful story. Um, yeah. Who was the Who was the um, Who did uh, um, came closest to it? They, he was going to one of the great uh, directors of all time, Stanley Kubrick. Mm-hmm. Uh, put an enormous amount of um, thought and effort and and money and uh, um, and they, we do have that script and that script's an awful lot better. I think uh-huh. he, I think uh, I think that um, uh, Ridley Scott should have just got hold of that script and yeah. made that movie. Yeah, yeah, I, f- I feel the same way that the the life is so awesome that you're going to have major omissions and i feel even reading a large biography um i feel like there's so much more that's interesting that i want to dive into well, i, I mean, have to cut sixty thousand words from that book in order to make it i mean it's pretty long as it is but um it uh, it could have been a whole lot longer but the editor quite rightly sliced back an awful lot of it um because he uh, thought that you know people uh, we had to feel about what people's wrists would be able to stand in yeah. the, in a in a hardback version. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I read it on the the Kindle device, so you could have made it much longer, and I would have would, would have enjoyed it. You know, with technology now, you could put it all online. Are you, are you going to do anything with those sixty thousand words? Write another book? Or yeah, just... I've, I've I've given uh, lectures uh, using them at the New York Historical Society. So, oh, so they they don't go to waste. We uh, we history we uh, writers absolutely hate ever having to write something and then uh, it go entirely to waste. Yeah, I think all writers <laughs> probably don't like wasting their work, yeah. You, you talked about the, the Joaquin Phoenix character, how he was, you know, unappealing. Um, the the brooding Napoleon, I sort of get that maybe this was true in the 1790s. He seems to be like a different person from before he came to power and then after. I don't see as much of that sort of humor, that sort of charm. Maybe it was there a little bit. It must have been there to some extent because it doesn't come out of nowhere. But do you see a big difference in his personality from before he became came to power and after? Um, no, I think he's just as funny after 1799 as, as before. He, uh, he was comfortable with power. He um, felt uh, very sort of naturally able to... Um, uh, to follow his ambition and his ideas about changing France. Um, so, uh, so no, actually, he was very sort of comfortable in his own skin when it came to uh, to wielding power. Um, where he becomes a different person, of course, is in uh, in defeat in those um, in those years, uh, eighteen thirteen, eighteen fourteen, um, and ultimately, of course, on Saint Helena once he's been defeated in eighteen fifteen. Um, but that's a uh, that's a just a factor of everyone's personality. You know, of course, you're a different person when you're when you're losing and uh, being humiliated and, and defeated than you are when you're master of Europe. Okay, so maybe I got that impression because he did have like a year or two of what we'd call depression, right? Like in the 1790s. No, I don't think so. His depression came in the in 1817 to uh, 21 once he'd been diagnosed with cancer. Okay, I might have I might have read that. That might have been another story. That might have been another book I, I read on that. Yeah, okay. it's, it's, well, there's no there's no need to read any other books on Napoleon now that mine's been published. <laughs> um, that's the that's the point, uh, Joe. It's a uh, it's a comprehensive biography. Uh-huh. <laughs> Are there any biographies that you that, 
that helped you? Which one, if if somebody wanted just more Napoleon, I mean, what, what would? What oh yeah, dozens. I mean, of course. The thing actually is the, the the dangerous thing is that because there have been as many books written about Napoleon as days since his death. If you want to, when you're given, I think I wrote that book in uh, six years. But if you wanted to, you could spend the rest of your life reading biographies yeah. of uh, Napoleon. And um, and so there is a point where you've got to, you know, very much stop and and uh, and concentrate on doing your own primary research and and coming up with your own views on things. So um, so yes, it's a uh, it's not a um, very sensible for a biographer of people who've been written about a lot before. And I found this obviously with my biography of Churchill to um, to read every everything ever written before on the uh, on the subject because um frankly it uh, would as i say take you the rest of your life yeah and there and in the case of napoleon specifically you talk about well, first of all i want to actually go back to that uh, that uh, statistic that uh, there's more books with napoleon in the title than uh days since he died could that i mean could that possibly maybe with ai you know could that well, who's the who's the source for that how do they calculate that that's just incredible um, to me oh well there are um uh, it, that is not. That also has Napoleon in the subtitle as well. Okay. So it's not just um, um, Napoleon in the title. But there have been um, more. He's, he died two hundred years ago, and there are more than two hundred times three hundred and sixty-five um, um, books yeah. on uh, Napoleon. Absolutely amazing. So it would it would count like Napoleon Dynamite, but still, I mean, we, most of them we assume are are the original <laughs> Napoleon, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. So the um, the uh, in the history you talk a little bit about this. The historiography of Napoleon. Uh, there's been sort of a uh, I think more letters have come out that were originally suppressed by his uh, by Napoleon the Third. Right? What is what has changed as far as how is and this I guess is a good case for reading a more recent biography if you're only going to read one. Not that yours isn't the best anyway, but you know if you're that's just another reason why the more recent ones are probably. Um, more useful. Um, what do you see has sort of changed the most from the, the uh, new information that's come out? Well, the big difference is um, Napoleon's eroticism. Uh, what Napoleon III tried to do was to uh, censor, essentially, the uh, erotic letters that Napoleon wrote. And uh, he wasn't very successful in doing that, obviously, and the wonderful... Um, um, Fondation Napoleon, the uh, the uh, Napoleonic Foundation in Paris has published the uh, thirty three thousand letters of Napoleon, and so we have what he actually really wrote, um, and uh, also it's got rid of some of the letters that were forgeries and so on, which found their way into some of them at least found their way into Napoleon the Third's collection of letters, and so we now um, have a uh, scholastically. Um, um, proven the group of um, of this huge treasure trove, thirty three thousand letters. So, yeah, you want to um, read a, a more modern biography, uh, which will use all of these. He wrote uh, a lot of, of very um, sexually explicit letters to uh, to his uh, his wife, and um, and they're another aspect of of Napoleon, you know, which uh, is rather wonderful, in fact, but um, is not one that you'd have got from 
the 19th century version of him. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the sexual sort of infidelity of Josephine. Uh, one point where I thought that we talked about the Ridley Scott movie, how it didn't influence his major geopolitical decisions, but you do talk a little bit about how in Egypt it really, you know, it became a political issue. Um, it seems to me that in a lot of other times and places, a man wouldn't have been able to sort of come back from this sort of pu- public cuckolding. Were the French just at that time particularly sort of just, you know, open and understanding and liberal on these things? Because if it was like Britain at the time or Germany, could I mean, could you imagine somebody surviving politically after something like that? Yes, the 18th century was a much more um, sexually uh, understanding uh, time than, um, than the 19th century. And... Uh, he immediately took a mistress, Pauline uh, Fouret. And so, uh, so yes, although his uh, wife had been unfaithful to him, it was, um, it, it, he, he just responded by being unfaithful to her. And, uh, and so the French did yeah. that Gallic shrug of theirs and, uh, and didn't take it personally. Uh, he then went on to have 27 mistresses, um, or at least 26 plus Pauline Fouret. So um, it's not as though he didn't get his own back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So this is, this is more a, a time thing rather than a, um, uh, a French thing, or it's, it's a little bit. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look at the, look at British politics in the, uh, in the period, you know, um, there are prime minister after prime minister is um, uh, having affairs. Lord Palmerston uh, in the uh, 1860s, late of the 1860s, which is well into the, um, Victorian era was uh, he had uh, mistresses and I think he fathers the, fathered a child in his 80s yeah. um, as prime minister um, so all in all uh, yeah people were um, a lot more uh, shall we say broad-minded although you never know I mean um, at, the, at the moment looking at, uh, at Mr. Trump's um, uh, private life uh, maybe people are yeah. becoming broad-minded again in uh, <laughs> In, in your country, at least, yeah, it's a, it's a force for progress, I guess. The uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was thinking more along the lines of uh, du- you know sexual double standards. Like I, I understand, like a male affair would be something. I would have thought, you know, I'm not an expert at the time, but that a, that a man being cheated on would have been a little bit different. So, I don't, are there a lot of sort of examples of that? Happening? No, that comes in, in that comes in in the in the Victorian era. Um, the, uh, Georgians recognised that women had sex drives too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So um, the uh, um, the uh, one thing I want to ask you about is the uh, near the when they burnt down Moscow um, in eighteen uh, twelve. Um, that to me is fascinating. And then you know a little bit later, they when the Russians come into Paris, there's a lack of um, popular resistance. Um, you would have thought, I think you might have guessed if you were just guessing like before this happened, that maybe France would have resisted more an outsider because they had the ideology of sort of nationalism while Russia was just this land ruled by this czar. I think they were probably behind in the historical development. It's very interesting that the, that Moscow, they burned the city down and in, in Paris, they just sort of accept the new rulers. Um, do you think that that would have been surprising beforehand? How do you think about that? Um, well, of course, the um, the Russians claim to have burnt the city down themselves and denied that it was the French that uh, did it. And I think historians actually back them up um, that the, what, what really happened was that the um, a city in wartime does catch fire and uh, it was going to be much better for Paris to do what it uh, did, which was essentially to um, capitulate 
and not for the last time in its history, of course. Yeah. And uh, as a result, we have the gl- glorious architecture of um, Paris today. So um, uh, it, it was also, of course, um, very different in that the um, Russians had only been invaded for less than six months, whereas the 1814 uh, campaign was long in the offing. Um, the, uh, the French were... Um, uh, were exhausted after 20 years of war, over 20 years of war. And, um, and frankly, uh, there wasn't very much um, uh, appetite for a full-scale um, national opposition to, um, to the Russian troops, who were, um, uh, who were actually domiciled not badly in, uh, in Paris. They behaved fairly well. They, uh, um, they were placed in their big um, tented camps um, on the Bois de Boulogne and so on. And uh, they didn't ravage the city in the way that uh, um, the victorious troops have um, throughout history. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting because it's, it's sort of a, it's sort of, we could say that, you know, that they were tired of war by that time, but you know, who, you know, who knows? Like, it's, it's like, it's, it's received sort of like a post hoc explanation. It's just some of these things that seem sort of mysterious to me that why one, you know, people will really resist and why one people don't. At the, these are just sort well, of Napoleon done. hoped that they would resist, of course. And he, and he thought yeah. that it would be possible to, to have a sort of, um, a, uh, defensive action that would go to down to the Vosges. Um, but what, um, uh, happened by that stage was that, there was a nat- national revulsion against any further um, uh, conscription of, uh, of young people and uh, young men. And, uh, of course, you also had the attack coming up from the south, Wellington crossing the Pyrenees, taking on salt in southern France. And so even if uh, Napoleon had uh, uh, tried to uh, carry on fighting after leaving Fontainebleau in, uh, in 1814... You and after Paris had fallen, or at least it had been surrendered by his best friend uh, Marmont, um, you um, uh, would still have had you'd have been caught between these two invading forces. Mm-hmm. Was Napoleon? We talked about meritocracy. Was Napoleon objectively the best general of his time or history? Because it seems that people really people of the time. I, I, I was highlighting quotes of yours in the book of people like the Duke of Wellington and others who um, knew something about war. Uh, was, was he just seen as like sort of Michael Jordan or LeBron James would be seen in their time, just uh, cut above everyone? Else? <laughs> yeah, that's a very good. Uh, that's a very good um, uh, analogy, actually, and not just of their times. You know, he's still thought of as one of the great seven captains of uh, history, along with Julius Caesar and Hannibal and. Uh, and um, you know, Marlborough and so on. So um, yes, he uh, he was, and that's why Wellington said that his presence, that Napoleon's presence on the battlefield, was worth forty thousand men, and um, why it was uh, so popular for his men, for him to to be there. You know, he would he would ride across the battlefield to show himself, show that he was there. This great uh, tactical uh, commander and strategic commander, and as a result. Um, he, uh, he was recognized as, as, as being a uh, great general. Um, he fought 60 battles. I've actually visited 53 of his, um, of his battlefields. And, uh, of those 60 battles, he won 47 and drew seven. So, um, 
It really was. Uh, if if you had a football team um, or uh, a basketball team, to continue your analogy, um, that played 61-47, drew seven, I think it would be considered to be a pretty damn good uh, basketball team. Yeah, especially given, I mean, for in general, it's it's different because there's so many factors. I mean, there's so many unknowns and sort of different morale, the terrain, I mean, everything. Well, this was the thing, you're quite right. I mean, these are battles that he wins when he has more men or fewer men, when he has more uh, cannon and fewer cannon, whether he's um, uh, being uh, attacked uh, or whether he's on the offensive himself, whether he's being he's he's uh, attacking on the right flank, the left flank, you know. Uh, there's a uh, just statistically, um, it's a uh, it's a very sort of broad market um, um, sample, <laughs> frankly, which yeah. uh, which does. I mean, Wellington didn't lose any battles, so uh, so in a sense, you know, Napoleon was unlucky to be up against the. Uh, um, the soldier from a siege, but he was not. Uh, he was not defeated. Yeah, yeah. So um, I know you. I, you know, I'm, I'm conscious of your time, Andrew. Um, what are you working on now, and when? Where can people follow, find you? Do you follow you on Twitter, or where can people keep? Um, I'm on. Um, I've got my own website, um, and uh, uh, yes, I've got a Twitter handle. Um, but I can't remember it offhand. I've got um, uh, most importantly, <laughs> I'm no shrinking violet when it comes to uh, to publicising my books. Um, but I suppose the uh, uh, the best way to um, to get hold of me is to go to an independent bookshop and buy uh, Napoleon a life. That's the uh, that's the thing to do. It's still, I think, the uh, it won lots and lots of prizes. Uh, it uh, got some wonderful reviews. It's still selling a thousand copies uh, a week in um, the United States, helped, of course, by Ridley Scott. But even before that, it was selling a lot. So, um, uh, so yeah, I, I hope people will be interested enough by this podcast to go out and get the book. Mm-hmm. And what are you working on now? Any any biographies in the works? Um, I've written two books since then, uh, two or three, or maybe four since then. Um, but I. Um, I'm now writing Napoleon and his Marshals, uh, a book mm. about uh, how the Marshals uh, got on with each other, or in fact didn't get on with each other, and uh, and the effect that that had on the Napoleonic Wars. Excellent. You know what? After I read your book, I, I searched for a good book on Napoleon and his generals because that's something I wanted to learn more about. So you know, I look forward. No, just to- don't don't bother getting one. Wait wait for another <laughs> couple of years, and, and uh, mine will come out. Uh, Richard, thank you very much indeed for having me on your show. It's a delight to uh, have met you. And maybe uh, how about if I come back on two years' time and talk about Napoleon and his marshals? Yeah, it'll be my pleasure. Thank you very much, Andrew.